1: since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base Cellular Trail Camera connected by the Moultrie mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit (laughs) www.moultriemobile.com. check, Mike. check. What's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hunting Gear Podcast. I'm your host Dan Johnson and today we're going to be talking with Brian Malone. Brian works at Pradco and Pradco is a, a holding company for brands like Summit and Whitetail Institute and Code Blue and there's some other brands there. Moultrie is one of them and so this particular podcast isn't necessarily uh, into specific brands per se, but more of a look behind the curtain about product development, how a company will decide whether or not they want to upgrade a product, whether they want to introduce a new product, whether they want to introduce new technology into a product or product line, or compete in a... uh, A category that maybe they don't have any experience in, and so it's a really good look behind the curtain in how companies kind of make decisions. And uh, um, Brian over there is the GM of, I believe his title is the GM of product development over there at Pradco, uh, certain certain brands over there at Pradco. And so it's a really interesting, thought-provoking, you know, conversation you get a you get a little bit of a look on how these companies make their decisions and, and that's why I got these guys on. And it's uh, something a little bit different. It's not necessarily product specific, but uh, I love the conversation nonetheless. Before we get into today's episode though, I do want to take a, a minute here and talk about the brands that help support the Nine Finger Chronicles. Excuse me, this isn't the Nine Finger Chronicles. This is the Hunting Gear Podcast. So the brands that help support the Hunting Gear Podcast and that is tethered. If you're looking for a saddle, definitely go check out Tethered. I am really excited in the next couple weeks to get out there and start putting my saddle to use. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, so if you're looking for a saddle, saddle accessories, climbing sticks, uh, even information on how to use a saddle, go check out Tethered. Last but, oh, uh, well, not even last, but next is Hunt Stand. Hunt Stand has just come out with a uh, a brand new upgrade that you guys—if uh, you listen to the last episode, let's see—it was Friday of last week. There was there's been a big upgrade and push for their Pro Whitetail, and so there's been a whole bunch of upgrades to the app, like a rut map indicator, new satellite imagery, um, what was the other one, uh, like so predicted deer movement, that kind of stuff. All on the all on the app now. So make sure you go over to huntstand.com, read up on all the new functionality with this Pro Whitetail upgrade, and uh, see if it's something that you'd be interested, in, man. I, I tell you, uh, I've messed around with it just for a, a little bit because it's been fairly it's a fairly new release, and I can definitely see the functionality for the Eastern Whitetail hunter for sure. So huntstand.com, and then last but definitely not least, if you're looking to capture your hunts on camera, go check out the new 6.0 Tacticam that can be mounted to your gun or your bow or like even I think they even sell brackets for like over the shoulder mounting and things like that. But this new 6.0 version has image stabilization. It has, uh, I believe it's 4K, and it has uh, an LCD screen that you can actually set up and, and view what you're looking at. So it's a badass camera. I really feel that uh, if you guys are into filming yourself, capturing these moments, and uh, whether it's for a YouTube channel or whether it's just for your, your own you know, save it on your computer and go back and show your friends and your, or your kids what you saw that day. Uh, definitely a camera you should go check out, and you can go check out Tacticam. So there's that. All right, those are the commercials. Huge shout-out to all the brands. Huge shout-out to Brian. And then huge shout-out to all of you for taking time out of your day to hop on uh, and listen to this podcast. Really appreciate it. And if you're out there starting the grind, good luck. Stay positive. Be safe. Check your equipment. Make sure your shot is on uh and all that stuff so uh let's get into today's episode three two one all right on the phone with me today mr brian malone brian how we doing man doing well how are you doing good doing good all right so you have to let me know before we kick this off where do you currently live
1: uh live in birmingham
0: alabama okay all right so alabama's uh um deer hunting season is in right now, right? Actually it's not. So
1: it comes in this coming Saturday. So really you know, growing up in the northeast, yeah, growing up in the northeast, living in the Midwest for a little while. It was a little bit of a an adaptation to move down here into the south, especially in Alabama where, you know, the seasons run a little bit later, the fawns drop a lot later. The rut's a lot later. Um, so, yeah, our archery season starts uh, this coming Saturday, and then we got about a month of archery, and then essentially from mid-November until early February, it's gun season down here.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I got a, a buddy who lives down in, uh, let's see, I believe it's Huntsville, uh, and he hunts he hunts all yep. over northern Alabama. I actually used to live in Hartsell and work in Huntsville long, like 20 years ago. But um, – uh, like he really likes hunting Alabama and the South and he's from Texas and he's bounced all over the South. Um, and he, he, uh, he's find found a way to get it done. But with you being a, you know, coming from the Northeast is, do you still have a, a preference over what you, what you like hunting versus where you're currently at? Yeah.
1: I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I love the Midwest. I love yeah. the Northeast for hunting, um, you know, still have some leases up in Illinois that you know, I'll be going to next month when the time's right. Uh, but the other nice thing is, you know, Alabama is very liberal with their bag limits. Oh, yeah. uh, the deer are, you know, hundred pounds less than they are anywhere else in the country. <laughs> and uh, currently right here in, in central Alabama and what attracted me to it when the, this opportunity came up about six years ago when I moved here, is it's absolutely beautiful it's right here we've got uh right close to double oak mountain so a lot of people picture you know alabama as being you know cotton fields and and rice fields and everything else just flat as a pancake and and really there's quite a bit of elevation right here in birmingham um and a lot of hardwoods not you know the big pine plantations that a lot of people picture so it makes it for a unique um hunting experience because there's not a lot of agriculture uh you're really just kind of hunting big giant open hardwoods um so you're not. I love going to the Midwest because you can pretty much look at a map and say, "This is where the deer are. This is where they bed. This yeah. is where they feed. And this is where I need to be to intersect." And uh, it's a lot different down here in yeah. uh, the Birmingham area.
0: Yeah, that's and that's what anybody that I, talent. yeah, and that's what everybody uh, ever tells me from the south. It's like you get, it's not, it's not like, and I I'm lucky, right? I hunt a completely different type of deer here in Iowa than in most places in the country right i can walk into just about any finger of timber in an ag field and there's going to be deer there and uh and it makes it it makes it easy right Uh, as opposed to some places where you know especially in in uh, states like uh, i'll use ohio for an example that have certain parts of that state are just giant blocks of timber and it, it just throws it's a little it's a it's more it's harder to identify their travel routes their bedding areas and things like that with that type of terrain
1: yeah absolutely
0: and that's i previously
1: uh before moving to birmingham i actually lived in ohio for about six years and, oh, okay uh, so i'm familiar with that terrain, uh, uh hunting some different parts of that state yeah but you know the deer are you know, 200 pounds plus and, and <laughs> when you get one on the ground it's 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 substantial. You know, you, you need two or three of these deer to, to fill a freezer down
0: here. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. And I think that's why my buddy down South kills so many of them a year. I can kill two and fill my freezer. He kills like five to fill his freezer. So, um, <laughs> I, I always got <laughs> to right, give right. I got to give him a little, tr- uh, you know, smack for that. But um, so how long, okay. You work for Pratco Outdoor Brands. What is your role there?
1: So I'm the general manager of the Signature Game and Land Management Group. So uh, PRADCO's got, you know, three kind of pillars that stand up the company. You've got our fishing division, which is about 20 brands based out of Fort Smith, Arkansas. And then we have t- two general hunting groups. One is Moultrie Mobile, and it's a it's a pillar all in itself because those are our connected devices, um, connected cameras, et cetera. And then we have my group, which consists of Moultrie, Summit, Code Blue, Whitetail Institute, Texas Hunter, um and a couple other small brands uh in our umbrella so we're kind of more of the hunting the game and land management core of the pradco group
0: gotcha and then fishing of course and
1: then fishing correct which is your fishing lure brands out of our
0: yep yep okay all right so uh and how long have you been work working with pradco or in the hunting industry
1: so I, I've been with Pradco for six years. I've been in the hunting industry since I was in high school. So oh, okay. uh, well over you know, 25 years. Okay, uh, Started at retail, went on the road as a rep, worked for a lot of different brands out there. Uh, did that for about six years. Did six years of sales management in that same world uh, before moving down here to uh, to Pradco. And since I've been here, I came in, you know, in a sales role, quickly transitioned over into more of a product development role. Um, And now manage the brands i mentioned previously.
0: Okay, cool. Let's talk a little bit about being a brand rep. And you mentioned hitting the road. And one question that I get a lot from, whether it's people on Instagram or emails, you know, I've been doing this podcast thing since man, I want to say 2014 now. And one, a lot of the questions that people ask me are how can I get into the hunting industry? And obviously all these brands, uh, want to sell their product. And I always say, Hey, find a brand and ask them, you know, how you can work for it. Talk to us a little bit about what the, the life of a brand rep is like.
1: Yeah. So when you're on the sales side as a brand rep, I, I always told people the best way to get into it is to start at the bottom and and when i say the bottom that's a horrible way to put it um start at retail if you really want to be on the road selling retailers you can't talk to them about the products and what products fit best for their their consumers without that experience of being behind the counter hearing all those people come through the door the issues that they're facing the things that they like um, that really transpires into really being able to go out there and represent different brands, especially if you're going to be an end user of those brands, uh, you have to have that experience. So I always thought retail was a great way to get into it. That's what I did when I was in high school and, and through my college career, when I was at Penn state worked at, worked in retail. And then, um, really kind of later in, into my college career, I started pro staffing. Um, and so there's a lot of these reps that are out there that have, you know, giant three, four state territories. And a lot of those stores have promotions, especially in the fall, on the weekends. And that one rep that covers that big of an area can't be at all those different stores. So um, they have what they call pro staff, and they can go out there and represent those brands on the weekends in their stay, so they can cover one store, you can be at another one. You know, there's not a lot of money in it, but it's still gaining that experience. You're out there talking to consumers. Now you're starting to wear some brand shirts. And then, you know, obviously, any type of secondary education is helpful. And then really it's just starting to ping the reps that you're helping to try to get into either their group or if they can, you know, insert you into their network to, to start building a relationship with some of those brands that are out there.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like that role would be just a lot of networking. Yeah. It, it sounds like that role would be perfect for somebody who is looking to get their foot in the door, um, someone who has little to no experience. And I guess I'll just say like right out of high school, right out of college with maybe a passion for the outdoors.
1: Absolutely. And and so in my career, I've hired people right out of college and it's been, you know, a great experience. They learn a lot. You know, you have to be patient with that because you're gonna it's a learning experience, so not every every time's gonna be a success. Um, and then we also had a lot of people that were, you know, later in their careers that were doing something maybe they didn't enjoy, but they always had a passion for hunting. And if it was in sales or, or some type of function like that, it really dovetailed over well into, you know, being a hunting brand rep out there in the field. And so I don't want to just pigeonhole it to someone out of college. Just, you know, that's the only way to get into it. Um, you gain experience different ways. Sometimes you're going to yeah. gain a very similar experience in a different market. And so if you're, you know, in your forties, fifties and want to change, um, there's definitely opportunities in the hunting market as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you get a buzzword uh, that a lot of people, maybe use, but don't understand actually what it means. And that's pro staff. Uh, And, you know, we've seen the pro staff memes out there on social media, making fun of people who call themselves pro staff. But in in all actuality, what is a pro staff individual?
1: So pro staff individuals, and again, we, a lot of them would have been full-time teachers, firefighters, police officers, Um, it's a part-time it's promotional staff. A lot of people think pro staff means professional, but it really means, uh, promotional. And so what they're doing is they're learning the brands they're learning, you know, what are the key things for each of these, you know, key products that are in this brand's portfolio and how do I tell a consumer about it? How do I deliver that message and put it in a way that they're going to understand and resonate with? And so it's a great learning experience for somebody who wants to be a brand rep to start as a promotional staffer, yeah. go out there, work the weekends, you know, right down there in the trenches, and you kind of start honing your craft that way. And it's really um, a great way, if you've never even been in sales before, to start building some some salesmanship, some sales experience uh, doing it. So that's really, from my experience, that's what I consider a, a pro staffer.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, this leads me and to to think of a couple questions in regards to dealers because we have these people who go out to the dealers and um just just from where you sit and your experience um in the in the outdoor industry talk to uh, talk to me about your thoughts your opinions maybe um if if this is even necessary anymore of a a, a dealer versus going and getting like me going to a, an official bow shop or me going and talking with a, a mom and pop dealer versus which seems to be going the way of direct to consumer or even big box store type product sales. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, they're they're all my customers, and I don't want to you know pigeonhole one against the other, but I I grew up in a dealer network uh, right. grew up, you know, working at a retailer, a gun shop, archery shop, and, and there's definitely still a spot for them. And, and I'll be honest with you, they're kind of the, the local bloodline. I really feel that a lot of these brands are created at that level. Um, it's word of mouth, the small dealers out there, they have the ear of that, of that consumer in that area. Um, I mean, they are, they're more of your experts, right? So if you, if you want to go in there and you want to get your bow tuned, Everybody knows the local bow shop. They know who the tech is, and that's who they're going to go take their bow to because they trust them. Um, so they, they definitely fill a niche that maybe isn't available at some of the the national accounts and some of the box stores or you know e-commerce you know consumer direct type businesses. Uh, you do get that that direct regional, you know what deer scent's working, uh, what yeah. attractant's working best in this area, you know what's the best time to be out there in the field. You're going to get whether it's from that person behind the counter or it's the guy over there in the stool, you know, that's, that's just a customer at the store just in there chewing the fat and listening to them. That's where you get uh, a really big value out of the dealer network. Um, I, I personally, I mean, I've, I've gotten to Fendi for dealers just because that is my background. Um, National accounts do a great job of, of helping us market our brands and, and put them into multiple places across a, a giant network um, but I don't ever want to overlook the value of the independent retailer out there, both from the firearm side and the archery side of having that expertise of somebody that, you know, has sold two scopes two years ago. He's still working in that in that store and he's hearing rave reviews from that person that comes back in and speaks to it or the guy that tuned this guy's bow is telling his buddy, you know, go see this guy. And so when you do that there's a comfort level in that area with that store's expertise and those consumers will keep going back there. Now maybe those stores can't carry all the products that are out there. Um, and that's where obviously the national accounts, those, those big box stores come in handy as well because they do have a bigger footprint. They can stock more items. And so if they're hearing about something that maybe isn't in stock at a local dealer, that's going to push them to some other places. So I think even for the national accounts out there, they they depend on the independent dealer network as well to help drive that business and help drive just consumer awareness.
0: Right. And this and I'm I'm like you in a certain sense where I really do feel that unlike I don't know, the one of the last things that I I bought that I had to do some thinking on, me and my wife bought some furniture. All right. I didn't like I honestly I didn't give a shit about it enough. Right. I didn't, there's no culture really around furniture. There's no, it's like, I'm going to buy this because my wife thinks it matches our living room decor that she wants, whatever. Okay. Let's go here. Let's buy it. Let's get home. Unlike the hunting community, which in my opinion, there's this culture. And I feel like without the dealers, the mom and pop stop, you know, the local uh, hangouts, like you mentioned, that culture suffers. And, and you're, you're losing something. Absolutely. So,
1: yeah. And that's where, you know, I think everybody's got that experience that they've had an independent dealer with that culture. You know, it's, it's a community. It's something that you're always welcomed into as well. That's the other thing I would say just about the hunting community in general. Um, You know, everybody's got an opinion, right? But I would say it's a very small industry, but everybody is very respectful to each other and their different methods you're always going to get some bad apples out there no not everybody's going to want to share their trail cam pictures with you and tell you where they hunt but in general people appreciate other people that that enjoy the sport
0: yeah and i think from my standpoint as a end user or a consumer from those dealers and someone who goes to the, the mom and, or the, both the mom and pop shops and the uh, the big box stores and does the direct to consumer as well, depending on product uh, or, or whether or not I'm planning for something or I need something last minute, right? So, I, I feel like my come up when I was younger and just getting into archery and hunting, I would rely on the feedback from the, the dealer themselves, the, the business owner telling me, hey, you don't need this or try this or I like these broadheads or I like, you know, I, I like this trail camera here or whatever the case may be and then at the same time, they, you know, you, when they're fixing your bow or something like that, they can tell you, okay, well, here's how you adjust this site and here's how you do this and you're getting this education that you, you wouldn't get anywhere else.
1: Absolutely, and that's where and that's where you build the trust. And I think, yeah. you know, it's the same thing with you know, like my wife. She's got one hairdresser that she'll go to. She has a trust with them. Yep. You get the same type of expertise and trust when you have somebody that's working on your bow, and you bring a pack of broadheads over to them. And these broadheads are forty nine ninety nine, and they say you don't need those. I'm telling you right now, go get those over there. They're thirty nine ninety nine. You're going to save ten bucks, and yeah. they're more effective. Yeah. And so when you feel that somebody's not trying to oversell you or, you know, they're steering you in the right direction, you don't forget that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the fact I know this guy spends just as much time in a tree stand as I do, as opposed to some guy who's maybe only working there, I don't know, to get into like to get through school or if this is just his job. They don't necessarily even hunt at times. So uh, I, I, right. I, I miss I miss that. I miss that in certain scenarios.
1: Absolutely, yeah, I agree, hundred percent.
0: All right, so um, now, what, you mentioned that one of your jobs now is is product development. Okay, and I'm fascinated by this aspect of the hunting industry specifically because I. I am a hardcore hunter, right? That's the badge that I wear. I'm a bow hunter. I love to bow hunt. Um, I I do a lot of research every year on what gear I want to purchase versus, you know, where I want to save versus where I want to spend more and and things like that. And I always get a kick out of a company, like certain companies introduce new products every single year, even when I feel that those companies have a, a, a sufficient product already. Right and and that for example I'll just use um, uh, Broadhead Company X. Broadhead Company X has a really badass broadhead, but yet they introduce a new broadhead every year uh, for some reason. Why do companies put so much energy, weight into product development every single year? So
1: there's obviously there's two different things. One. It is because you you found a new technology that or a new um, way to do something that is better or it's more efficient. Two is you know freshness, newness. Um, you if you have the same thing for you know decades, I'll I'll tell you there's actually some anomalies there that you're right. It, it probably isn't needing new every year, but to get that load in, you know, when you're when you're selling into accounts all across the country and you have a new product you're you're getting a full load in versus you know the next year they've carrying over some inventory they're not going to buy as much so i think there's a lot of companies that do that for us here really over the last five years we've really slimmed down our catalog um went back really kind of focused and honed in on a items i think summit is a great example of that where we were into ground blind we were into climbing tree stands yeah uh obviously we were in the hang-ons we were in the ladder stance and it almost got to the point where we were way over skewed even on climbers um where really the summit viper is you know our flagship and how do we make the summit viper different? so for the last two years that's where we really started getting the self-leveling technology where you can adjust to the tree stand without having to descend and and, and readjust instead of just coming out with a summit viper with Uh, a different color seat or this one now has a a shooting rail or a footrest included in the box. We don't need to do that anymore. And I think what's nice about our group and our product managers is we have dedicated people to each one of these categories that, that focus on a daily basis. We rationalize our our SKUs over and over to make sure that if we have something that's slow moving, we just need to get rid of it. We need to move out. Let's focus on the core. Let's, let's quit trying to reinvent the wheel Um, And just let's look at constant improvement on our a items. Yeah. And so in doing so we try not to upset that apple car. We've got, we also take a lot of feedback from, you know, outside of our walls. You can't have just a couple people sitting around in an office all day, just drumming up ideas. You're setting yourself up for failure. So we take a lot of uh, feedback from our influencers that we partner with. And then really a lot of the items that we come out with, and sometimes we're ahead of them and we, we get product ideas, coming through our portal on our websites that, you know, we've already got in development and we're launching in 60 days. Um, but it's, it's kind of just positive reinforcement that we're doing the right thing because we do get a lot of input from consumers out there, whether it be on social media or through our new product submission forms, things like that.
0: How do you, how do you market a product? Let, let's just say, uh, to elaborate on the example that you used in the the Summit Climber, because for me, uh, I live and die uh, by like the old Lone Wolf tree stand. It's now Novex. Okay, I have. I'm a, a mobile guy. That's that's my holy grail. A lot of guys, um, especially in the South, they they rely on that uh, that Summit uh, climber. And those are the two. Those are two products that I feel don't necessarily need the marketing dollar because they're just. They're above that. How do products get to that point?
1: It's decades. Yeah. It's it's not, well, it's, it's two things. One, it's the product itself. Right. You, you, you mentioned the lone wolf climber. That's something that you've had a lot of success with, you're comfortable with, and that's great. And if you're comfortable and you're obviously climbing a tree and that's what you feel safe in, then, then please continue to use that item for us. It's been with that Viper climber, the Goliath yeah. and the Titan for those that are maybe a little hundred pounds, but when people use the product for years and years on end, I mean, these things don't, you know, die out. It's not like a, a consumable product that you're going to use for a year or two and then pitch it. Th- these are products that people have hanging in their, you know, garages for 10, 15 years plus. Yeah, We're looking for ways to get that person that's, you know, we can only sell so many in a single year to a single person, especially on something like a climber. There's not a lot of people that have six climbers, but they might have six ladder stands. Right. Um, so how do we how do we improve that product to make somebody that already owns one want to come back and get an upgraded version of it. And that's, that's kind of where product development comes in. And that's what I feel like we've been doing a good job with, with, you know, the Viper pro, the Viper pro level. Um, because we have a ton of summit consumers out there that live and die by summit. And now we're able to give them something fresh, something new, something that they've probably been in the tree stand themselves and kind of gripe a little bit about, man, I wish there was a way to level this thing up without having to climb down the tree or, um, just ways to make the stand safer or, or just more comfortable. That's, that's really the, the, the crux of product development for us, especially on that summit side.
0: Yeah. How does a, a company know, and you can talk about the market in general, or just from your experience at Pradco, how does a company know when to introduce a new product versus uh, make adjustments to a current product?
1: the market kind of tells you that you know after so many years i mean we we're very analytical here so we look at sales we look at point of sale trends that are out there um and just a lot of consumer feedback and the market will tell you when it's time it's not something that we can just put up on a board and say okay we're going to go work on a a five or ten year roadmap and we're going to introduce you know this widget this year and then five years from now we're going to introduce this widget with this technology because if we're talking about switching from like say tree stands over to game cameras you know there could be a new chip coming out that no one's ever heard of in six months and that changes the entire game of of how we could spec a camera what we get the flash to or the megapixels or the trigger speeds so that was something there that the market dictates it or the technology dictates it um it all really depends on, on what product you're specifically talking about
0: yeah talk about uh in in your guys's uh experience There's, there's, I'll I'll use saddle hunting for an, for example, there are people who feel that Mm -hmm. saddle hunting is a fad and that eventually it's going to go away. Right. But saddle hunting has been around long enough now on this. I feel like this, this is the second go round of saddle hunting. Uh, The first one happened, you know, in the nineties or whatever that back when I first started bow hunting and, and, but now it seems like it's, it's going to be here to stay. How do you guys determine whether to jump in on uh, a "quote unquote" fad versus knowing if that has any validity, and then you get into that market as well?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting you brought that one up. So, you know, in my career, you know, back I think in the the period that you're talking about, you really had two that were out there with um, ambush and then um, Green's Tree Saddle, yeah, which eventually turned into Trophy out there today um and i actually had worked with that brand in in a previous life oh cool i think you know it's definitely probably had more of a fad feel back in the day um i personally love them myself i think there's there's a market there for a consumer to have a climbing tree stand and a saddle Uh, especially when i was living in ohio and there's a lot of agriculture in that area of ohio that i was living in and i was butting up right against you know neighboring farms fields i didn't want to leave a bunch of climbing sticks or uh, a tree stand in the tree because when they're out there in their fields, they're going to see my stand. It's also not a straight tree. I can't get a, a climbing tree stand in it. That saddle made it very nice to be able to go up, hide the sticks on one side of the tree, hang when I needed to hang, and then get out um, and be very quiet going in and out. So, and that's, that's coming from, you know, the manager of, of summit tree stands. Yeah. Um, I think that there's, you can't, you can't have your eyes closed to other things that are out there. Now for us personally, kind of getting back to you know understanding your brand. I just know Summit is not a brand that is a tree settle brand. We are a we are a high-end lightweight aluminum comfortable climbing tree stand brand yeah. and we've got a uh, you know decades yeah. of, of information and, and failed you know entrances in the different markets with that brand that tell us you know what let's not get too far away from our base. this is what we're known for let's just be perfect at this. Now, if it's starting a new brand uh, and getting into that, there's there's always that possibility out there. Um, I think that there's a market there. I just personally don't know that it's something that we would want to get into. Um, But I also don't want to shy away and say that, you know, it's a fad and it's going to go away in 10 years because I I think it is here to stay.
0: Yeah.
1: I think it's a great tool for those that want to use it.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you a question about uh, demographics. And so if this is me not knowing anything about your guys's business with moultrie and summit and this is even before i knew that the company was based out of birmingham alabama but i could tell you that when i hear moultrie and i hear summit those two brands i think the south right um how do you guys take a uh a, a product or a brand that is synonymous for a certain region in the United States and try to make it popular or introduce it into a different region of the United States?
1: Well, I think, you know, obviously because it's where it was, was born and bred is, is actually both Moultrie and Summit both were, were born here in Alabama. Um, obviously Dan Moultrie, you know, locally here in the, in the Birmingham area, then Summit that was up closer to where you're from, uh, Northern Alabama in Decatur, that those two brands will definitely carry that connotation just because of where they started. But right. really the products themselves, you know, it, it's all done in marketing. Um, it's all done in sales. It's, you know, the effect is, effectiveness of your sales force to go out there and convince retailers to, one, you know, stock those products in different areas. And then it's, you know, Again, you mentioned those two brands. I look at them as not being based in the South. I look at them as being iconic. Yeah. And so they've been able over, you know, you're not going to do it in a year. It's been done over decades of people using those products across the country and saying, you know what, maybe it's started down there, but they're on to something and they're doing something that is effective where I live and hunt as well. Yeah. Um, so I really think it's done through marketing and sales and not necessarily through the product because the product itself for hunting doesn't really have a regionality to it the really the, the only thing that makes something regional would be based on i'd say more regulations you know the south is pretty lax on baiting feeding you know from texas all the way over to georgia uh most of those states you can put a feeder out and hunt over it a lot of states up in the north you can't you know pennsylvania you're not going to sit there and hunt over a feeder so i think that's where it's kind of getting this connotation but in general um, the products really aren't regionally based it's it's you know, local regulations that probably restricts it or or tags it more than the brand itself.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Now, when you guys uh, sit around the round table there at Pradco and you say, okay, it is, it's time to start brainstorming about new products or uh, identifying, uh, you know, where there might be some holes in your own lineup to introduce uh, a, a new product that may compete with another brand or, or you guys get some market share. What do those conversations look like? Yeah. And
1: it really kind of starts with, you know, internal reflection on what we currently have. Um, you know, what's working out there. What's not, you know, what did, what did we introduce that failed is probably the best place to start. And then just kind of doing a, just a quick, you know, discussion on why to fail. What's the postmortem on that product? Are we going to end its life? Are we going to replace it? Or are we going to walk away from that specific product or category? And then if we are gonna replace it, what needs to be replaced? Um, how do we fix it to make it more um, either usable or uh, consumer friendly? So that's the first thing. Secondly, when we sit down, we do a lot of uh, competitive analysis. You know, What else is out there in the, in the marketplace? Who else is winning? And if it's in a category that we're in, but maybe there's a specific product with a specific technology or a price point or a feature that we don't have, you know, that's where those discussions And they're lengthy discussions about, you know, could we make it? If we could, what do we think it would cost? What does the price need to be? Um, What does the weight need to be? What does the size need to be? Those are all the different discussions that we're having early on. And even, you know, in the days of e-commerce now, the discussions are going even to, you know, how do we make it smaller? How do we make it ship in its own container versus, you know, just focusing on, the product itself and how it's be used in the field, we're thinking way beyond that as far as how's it gonna be the easiest to get it into the consumer's hands? What's gonna be the easiest way to market it at a retailer? Uh, whether it's gonna be on a shelf, on a peg, because you know real estate at, at retail is, is valuable, so we wanna make sure that we're, we're owning our space, but we're not taking up too much space that may restrict a retailer from being able to even buy the product. Right. Um, so all those different things are, are, are kind of on the board when we're having those discussions. And then obviously we're trying to have them early enough because that, that product development cycle is so long. Um, whether you're, you know, building it here domestically or you're using a, a third party uh, manufacturer or if you're going to be importing it, those discussions and those designs, whether it's our internal engineering team or if it's collaboration with some some different third parties, they have to be going on very early so we can have product, you know, right now in the field using it before we ever go into say uh, an archery trade association show in January and launch it. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just it, from inception to development, to production, to testing, to all of that, before it finally hits a retailer's shelf, it's, it's probably much longer than what many people realize. Do
0: you ever have any examples of or maybe instances where the idea came out great the product came out, it looked good. But once you got into product testing and got it out to a handful of maybe, uh, pro staff or people to test before the actual launch, you had to be like, Hey man, this isn't as cool as we thought it was going to be.
1: Um, yes, I can think of one. Okay. <laughs> uh, we had, a. Uh- we did have one, and I actually, I mean, we no longer make it, and I, I guess I don't mind even talking about it at this point. Um, but we did launch one uh, a few years ago, actually, so it's, it's fairly recent. That was, I thought, a, a great idea. Um, we ended up licensing the design and, and the, uh, the technology from someone else that had it, but it was a basically a chair backpack, um, and I thought it was awesome. It was adjustable so you can get it real low down the ground. If you want a predator hunt, you can, you know, make it more upright to use it like a dub stool, but then you have this backpack, you know, built into it that it all packs down into that you can carry your shotgun shells or, you know, whatever beverages of choice uh, you wanted to carry into the field with you, but you you could literally just throw this thing on your back, walk straight to a blind and not have to worry about a chair. Um, Price points were good, uh, but once we got it out there in the field, we had a lot of revisions, one, before we ever got it to market because we were starting to see failure with some of the hardware pieces that our factory had used. So that delayed it a little bit, um, and I would say we probably made the wrong decision because it did increase the retail a little bit more, and I feel like that was probably its biggest barrier um, out there in the field was that it was it was a higher retail than probably what the market was ready for, um, and again it was a summit brand uh, branded product, and I just don't know that it resonated with the summit consumer. Gotcha. So it probably needed to be either Moultrie or you know, or just start another brand and, yeah. and start building it out that way versus using it wasn't known for it. Yeah. So I I guess that's a pretty good example of what you're asking.
0: Yeah. So how much weight do you guys put into end user feedback?
1: I mean, it's, it's everything now, obviously because of, of constrictions on time, our feedback pools are probably limited to, you know, maybe 30 or 40 people and, you know, really over a, a 60 day period. Um, the rest of it is really done through just rigorous testing, you know, on on our tree stands, we go through rigorous testing as far as to those TMA standards, drop tests, et cetera. Um, but as far as end usage, you know, we feel like we get a really good idea from our small user group of, you know, say a couple dozen people, but there's always things that come up that consumers will surprise us with, you know, through feedback that it's like, yeah, that, that would have made a lot of sense. I wish I had thought of that. And, you know, and that kind of gets into those. You know product changes where somebody comes out and says hey i've got another product for you i'm going to introduce it this year it's because somebody whether it was internal or external um figured out a way to either make it more usable or more comfortable or whatever it might be
0: yeah now when it comes to cost right i mean there's people who and i'll I'll go back to tree stands because this is just fresh on my mind but uh, tree stands, right? Some of these hang on tree stands now are getting into the $500, $600 or 600 even $700 plus range on s- certain tree stands. And so there are people out there that are like, yes, I will pay for that. But a majority of people are like, hey, this is an awesome product, but there's no way I'm going to spend X n- number of dollars on this product. How do you guys combat those conversations or, or have those conversations? I mean, is it all simply a cost analysis that you guys run to say if a product's going to be profitable or not?
1: Well, yeah, obviously from our side, you know, there's families to feed and and a parent company that that really would like us to not lose money every year. Right. So we, we, we definitely have that side of the analysis, but then, you know, we kind of start out with a target retail in mind. Uh, Now over the last couple of years with, Excuse me, with all of the different things globally um, that have caused price increases, whether it be freight and tariffs and raw material increases, some of those retails have drifted up. Um, but when we're coming out with a new product, I would say, you know, a great one would be an example of what I can't tell you about that we're coming out with this year for out of, on the tree stand side is we just had a low expectation on performance of sales. Um, we know that maybe we're not going to sell. Ten thousand, We may sell 3,000 because the price point dictates it. But at least it helps round out that assortment. So we have something for the consumer that only wants to spend, say, 300 or $400. We also have something with extra bells and whistles that we're adding to the product line that people have been asking for. And we've been telling them if we do that, we can do it, but it's going to be more expensive. And we know that, you know, all the people that say it means that probably 20% will actually probably purchase it. The others just thought it would be a good idea if they could get it for the same price. Right. Um, but those are all conversations we have internally. And we just we try to set realistic expectations um, for our our sales performance and our volume on those higher price points. Yeah. They're they're needed. Uh, it's more aspirational. I don't think I mean, if you it's the same thing with cars, right? You want to build the Corvette, but you're still going to have the Cobalt, you know, is in the Cobalt, you're going to sell a whole lot more of them. But. It, the Cobalt is going to have some styling of a Corvette, you know, whether it's on a, the, the lines of the vehicle or something. And it. you always want to have that aspirational, super high end, fully loaded part of your assortment. But then you also want to be able to have something out there that says, you know, if the person doesn't care, if it, it has, you know, X, Y, Z features, they really are just concerned about this and this. We have that for them as well.
0: Yeah. OK. <laughs> and I'll tell you this from a, a serious hunter standpoint. I will complain about the price of a product. But if that mm-hmm. if I have a buddy who buys it and tells me, dude, this is a badass product, I will then probably go try that product out and, and potentially buy it for the same amount of price that I earlier complained about. So <laughs> so I I think I don't know. I just feel that the 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 hunting the series whether it's the serious hunter versus the weekend warrior, I don't. However, you want to define it, I really do think that, especially with with hunting being a a hobby or a, you can call it what you want, a, a hobby, a passion, or it's uh it's uh I don't know, it's probably a industry where people spend more money than what they probably should. If they, like they don't really care about budget, they're just going to be like, yeah, budget's important, but I'm going to buy this still.
1: Yeah. And I don't disagree. And and I would say when we start launching and and we've got some products launching on the Moultrie side that is getting into some retails on the feeder front that we've never touched with the Moultrie brand. You know, we are definitely in those retails with Texas Hunter, which is more of a higher end metal, you know, Texas market type of feeder. But we've got some feeders this year for Moultrie that are also starting to drift up that way. But what we see historically is when we start entering those higher price points is exactly what you just said. You know, we, we set realistic expectations in year one that it's going to perform, but it's not going to perform as well as we probably had hoped. But then we watch year two, year three. And once people start using it, they start telling their friends and everybody's having these positive experiences. They end up really performing well, but it's really not until year three or year four before they really hit their stride. And then to your point on just, you know, hunting consumers in general, I don't want to say hunting is completely insulated from, you know, the inflation or or poor economics, but when we have downturns in the economy, like we're having right now, people seem to tighten up a little bit. Maybe they're not going, you know, to three different States and hunting, but they're going to put a lot more money into, you know, their back 40 that they're hunting right there by their house. Yeah. And so maybe they're not going to go spend, you know, $3,000 on a deer hunt to go hunt on a state, but they're willing to go spend, you know, another hundred dollars and put an extra feeder or a camera out. And so for hunting accessories, you know, I would say that curve is, is much flatter, uh, spiking up or down in, in different markets or different economic scenarios versus others. And I think it's to exactly what you said, we have a very passionate core hunting group that is willing to spend the money on something, especially if they think that, you know, it's going to perform good for them and it's a hobby that they're passionate about.
0: Right. Now, th- there's certain products out there where you have like uh... – Let's just again use Moultrie or uh, multi Trail cameras. A lot of people can use Moultrie Trail cameras. A lot of people can use Summit tree stands. A lot of people can use uh, Code Blue Sense and, and things like that. But then we have a brand like Whitetail Institute, which is a very niche product. Uh, you know, a product, very niche brand for people who have the ability to. To plant food plots and things like that. How do you keep a brand like that? I'll just use the word "sexy."
1: Well, I'll be honest with you. With them, it's with Whitetail Institute. It is a very uh, unique product. It's a very, you know, food plotters are I kind of put them like you know waterfowlers or you know some of these other kind of niche hunting categories. Mm-hmm. Where when there's an expert out there, or there's somebody super passionate about it. They're going to put a lot into it, and so you're right. There's some there's some barriers to entry to putting in food plots. One is obviously land access.
0: Exactly. And so
1: if you have the land, do you have the equipment uh, to to put the food plots in? And then if you do, you know, how are you going to do it the right way? And that's where kind of Whitetail Institute comes in. Is you know they're very very educated on how to put food plots in. I mean for Whitetail Institute so you're aware of they're actually still based out of Hope, Paul. So they're actually not in Birmingham. They're uh, just South of Montgomery. When we partnered with whitetail Institute, we realized quickly that the talent base and the knowledge base inside of those walls down there do not need our influence. You know, that they they've created a brand into themselves based on their knowledge and their passion for food plotting. And so if you were to call whitetail Institute, you're calling directly to their office and you're getting somebody as a complete expert on that category on that seed, they can tell you about what's going to perform best in your area, how to do the soil test. And so for that, you kind of need that specialized group of customer service that can walk you through it kind of step by step. And they'll tell you exactly what you need for equipment. Or if you're not going to use this type of equipment, you know, this is what your expectations should be about the performance of the seed. Um, but that's, you're right, it's, it's very niche. Um, and But if you can check those boxes where you have the access to the land, you know, food plots work great. All over the country, and obviously there's different mixes that grow better in different areas. But having really the talent to answer those questions and the access for somebody just to be able to pick up a phone and get right into somebody immediately and get some answers and, and some you know guidance on what to do and how to do it is uh, invaluable for them. And that's there's so I wouldn't say they're trying to be sexy. Um, they're really just trying to be the best at what they do. Just like someone wants to be the best at what they do now. Um, you know, I would say Whitetail Institute. Is kind of written the book and and actually helped steer some of the other brands on you know uh, you know what's the book good to great you know the hedgehog theory you know focus on what you do best and that's what they do best and their marketing does a really good job uh, but again you know a food plotter is a different is a different hunter it's not the person that's probably going to be going out two weekends a year and you know hunting on on grandpa's place without putting a camera out this is the person that really knows their property they're kind of trying to put a lot back into it they're trying to grow bigger deer maybe get an older age class. Um, And so with that, they've got the expertise to help that individual out.
0: Yeah. Now, when it comes to, I I talk about this a lot on the Hunting Gear podcast here, and that is how to make good decisions on what product to buy. And as as a person like yourself, who not only works in the industry, Uh, and and works with a variety of different product categories, but yourself, you know, you're also a serious hunter. How would you recommend an end user go about the process of making a decision on any product?
1: Well, I think a lot of that really hasn't changed, um, you know, for decades. One is is probably the most obvious, and I think you alluded to it earlier, um, is really, you know, Who's in your hunting group? Who who are your core friends that share that same passion that are, you know, buying products as well? That's really where I, and I still get a lot of input from others that maybe are using something that I haven't used in the past and they're, you know, recommending it. That's still where I get a ton of information on things that maybe at Pradco we aren't making right now, but I'm still interested in buying it because I'm going to go say to Colorado and go hunt mule deer. Well, none of our, you know, we're not putting in food plots or putting out deer feeders for mule deer. Um, so there's a lot of products that I have questions about, and I ask the experts too. Is what has changed over the last, you know, several, you know, few decades is just, you know, the internet and being able to really have full access to any information you could possibly need. And I always do start on manufacturers' websites because I feel like they've got the most accurate information. And then from there, I start looking at, you know, there's a lot of YouTube reviews out there, um, a lot of forums, a lot of different uh, places that you can actually go and get. You know some, and then obviously social media, right? uh, Where you can get some of that positive feedback from there, and then you know, I see it a lot of times too, where I'm I'm curious about a product, and I'll I'll go over to their website, I'll look at it, and then maybe I'll click on their social media site, and if all I see are positive reviews, and then I also see there's a bunch of their hidden or deleted, I immediately turn away. Um, So I really appreciate some of those manufacturers, and we, we we do a lot of the same, where we just we keep it as 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 open and honest as possible. Obviously if there's vulgarities in our, in our, you know, comments, we'll, we'll delete those out. But um, if somebody's having a bad experience, I don't want somebody on our marketing or our customer service team deleting it. I want to be able to read it yeah, because I want to, I want to take that feedback and see if I can do better as well. So that's where I get a lot of the information is really, you know, from word of mouth is number one. And then two is just from the internet, whether it's, you know, Company websites and social media, or just on different forums.
0: Right, and it, it, it's funny you mentioned uh, the internet. Right, it's it's been around for so long now; like we can't imagine our life without it. But when I first started buying hunting products, I didn't have that as a reference, and so. Everything that I learned was A at the dealers like I mentioned <laughs> mentioned or other hunters, right? Or in print ads and and that had nothing bad to say about any product ever. So I there was <laughs> I, I there was a I feel like there's there was a, a a much bigger learning curve back then on purchasing products than there was today when anybody can voice their opinion about anything and you can start to see trends on if a product is worth it or not and so um i i just i i i always get a kick out of you know like a, a product like the acorn cruncher or the deer view mirror or uh what was the other one those little wafers that you i used to pin to my hat when i was younger and and you know all those products oh, yeah. that i would never yep. even think about purchasing today but because it was like hey check this out and uh, <laughs> so i checked it out and it you know didn't help me at all so uh, i always get a kick out of that right so. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I had a lot of those memories, too, of
1: the archery shops. And, you know, whether it was light knocks when they were first coming out, yep. you know, you really couldn't find a whole lot online. But you'd get, you know, one person say, oh, it's amazing. I washed the already right through the deer. Another person says, oh, I'll put 15 grains in the back of my arrow. It didn't fly right. And so you get you're conflicted. But, um, yeah, it's, it's funny. You're right. It has definitely changed.
0: Yeah. Well, I tell you what, man, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and uh bs with us for a while about uh, you know the Pradco brands some of the products that you guys uh work with and uh, just the overall knowledge that you have in the space so thank you very much for your time and if you do get out in the woods uh, later this year man good luck
1: yeah likewise thanks for having me on and uh yeah safe hunting this fall and, and best of luck to you as well